I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Bubble Trouble, conversations between the independent analyst Richard Kramer, that's me, and the economist and author Will Page, where we lay out some inconvenient truths about how financial markets really work. This week, we keep pace with the phrase du jour, the bait of all clickbaits, the bandwagon that's traveling across the internet that is the metaverse. And we're going to move our dialogue up a gear with our very special legendary guest, Sir Martin Sorrell, the founder of the WPP Group, and since 2018, the chairman of S4 Capital. He's described our current foray into the metaverse as being in the foothills. So let's get climbing over the next half an hour with our restless visionary and biggest guest to date. More in a moment. So we'd like to welcome to the stage Sir Martin Sorrell to the Bubble Trouble podcast, and we'd like to give you the microphone to quickly introduce yourself, what's currently in your inbox, and then more importantly, how our audience can follow your work. And follow me corresponding with me by email, by boring old email, martin martin.s4capital.com, it's fine. Which sounds boring, but the exciting part is you always reply. <laughs> well, I've got nothing else to do but do podcasts like this. <laughs> martin. One thing I want to say to yourself, economist to economist here, is I've long admired your concise and precise economic commentary, something I wish... Well, was... I got a 2-2 two, two in economics. What did you get? A 2-1, which means you partied more than me. Yeah, you were much better <laughs> than me. You should be much more concise than me. But I think other economists, especially the governor of the Bank of England, has to be said, could learn from you there. But let's well, start with that. the recent events. And what's clear is yeah. there's a lot of belt tightening going on in the economy. 20% headcount reductions, left, right, and center. Well, government's not belt, belt lining. Government's is... going the other way. The government is loosening its belts. That's the problem, <laughs> without a plan. So that might force other people to tighten their belts even further. It is uh, having no. that effect. But no, no I wish really... there was more belt tightening by the government that we wouldn't be in the position we're in. Exactly. But let's with regards to the metaverse, do you think this belt tightening, potentially ad budget belt tightening as well, is just going to put the metaverse to bed or do you think it can weather the storm? Well, you know, the metaverse is part of what I would classify as digital advertising. The trouble is that analysts, independent or dependent, I'm not quite sure what is a dependent analyst, but anyway, analysts and indeed economists tend to lump analog and digital together. And I think that's a mistake. It's really two different industries. It's a tale of two cities. One is a uh, a growing environment, and one is a flat or declining one. And digital as a proportion of global media is about 60% at the moment, forecast to go to 70% by 2025. Advertising, interestingly, as a proportion of GDP, certainly in the US, is forecast to rise. It used to be 2%, fell to 1% as traditional media came under pressure. As digital started to grow, 
I think it fell actually below 1%. It started now to move up. And as digital is growing, it'll probably hit about 1.4%, 1.5% by 2025. So whilst it would be very difficult to say, given what's going on at the moment, that life is going to be rosy, it isn't. There, there, there is a recession or there will be a recession, and I think it will be a lengthy one. I don't know how deep it will be because central banks, as we saw yesterday, start to panic when, when panic set in. Uh, so we may see a reversal of direction. So it might be a little bit shallower than people think. But I think we'll have a long recession into 23 and 24, and mm. it, things won't change until the US general election in 2024. And we'll have a UK election or the latest, I suppose, time for a UK election as well. So 24 will be the year, I think, when things start to improve a long way off. So do you think maybe the benefits of the shift to digital and potentially the shift to the metaverse from an ad spend perspective can offset the costs of the belt tightening that's going to be unavoidable. Well, you said the cost of the belt tightening. I mean, you're going to go into a position, situation. I mean, if we were having this conversation about six or seven months ago, GDP growth, we would have been talking about you know, three or 4% for this year. Now we're talking about two or three. Mm -hmm. And next year, maybe it was going to be two or three. And now we'd be talking about one or two. In that environment, Companies are going to be looking for growth. They'll be moving down the funnel, as we say, to more mm, activation and more performance, more media mix modeling, more justification for ROI. And a lot of the digital, not all of it, you know, Snap maybe some parts of Meta, uh, upper funnel stuff, but Amazon and Google are certainly lower funnel. And what's interesting is that if you look at the analyst forecasts for advertising revenues, even now, for the eight biggest platforms next year, they sum on a, sim on a simple basis, not on a weighted basis, to about 13.5% against 10% this year. So I think ad revenues next year we might surprise the upside as far as digital is concerned. I think the pressure will come on the analog side. There's a lot of concern amongst our clients about TV frequency capping, which is capping the frequency which TV ads are shown on one. And that's for two reasons. One, because it's wasteful. And consumers get annoyed by it, by repetition, needless repetition. And secondly, because reach of a traditional TV is under pressure and young people are not watching TV like they used to. They're watching digital TV, connected TV over the, and connected television. They're, they're, they're watching it in a different way. And that annoys consumers, clients as well, as being wasteful. So I would see analog continuing to be under pressure next year and the year after but digital operating with a little bit more freedom. Whether it's sufficient to give uh, the growth that we're talking about, we'll see. But I think there, is going to be, there are going to be opportunities in the digital area. And metaverse is a subset of digital expansion. I want to pick up on a couple of things that I think are kind of more broader or more interesting than the metaverse per se. And Sir Martin, you mentioned the 13.5% growth figure. As an independent analyst, which I would say is different from being a conflicted analyst, we don't have to curry favor with the companies perpetuating the fiction that things are all going to be fine. And I think that when you mentioned a company like Snap, they, even whilst they're still growing, have cut 20% of their costs. Is that something that... Yeah, but, but, yeah you see, yeah. but Richard, that is... What, let me ask you, what was that sad revenues of this year? Uh, coming up on five billion. Five and a half billion. Yep. What is what is Google's projected ad revenue this year? 
Well, they did 148 billion of sites. They did 215 last year. Yes, and then the the network business, then YouTube. I was getting the three parts of it, and there's a different outlook for all three of them. No, but no, no, but then complicate things. Let's simplify it, right? (laughs) Yeah, Will says let's simplify it. Google did 215. Probably will do 235 this year, including YouTube, which will do. Mm -hmm. More than 30 billion, which is the same yep. for Netflix. Meta will do about, a, despite all the challenges, do about 130 versus 115 last year. Amazon will put do about 41 versus 31. Alibaba and Tencent, I haven't got good data on that. Uh, uh, and we TikTok, do. But, yeah. TikTok, well, you tell me. TikTok, uh, TikTok looks as though it may be doing really extremely well. I mean, I saw a figure for TikTok for 2019 at 20 billion, and I've seen figures as high as 60 billion for TikTok. Apple TV, 10 billion this year, maybe? We'll see. No, not nearly. So what is Apple? Well, Apple's advertising business, the search and other advertising business is about six, seven billion dollars. They don't really, Apple TV itself has almost nothing. I guess the question, thinking about going into the, you laid out a picture of of quite a tough recession in 23 and 24. And one of the topics we like to get into on bubble trouble is, are some of those bubbles going to burst in that recession? Now, the bubbles have already burst. So, I mean, so we had the post-COVID bubble, which bursted 22. Probably people thought it was going to last a little bit longer. People are now saying the growth that would have occurred in 22 and 23 was dragged forward into 20 and 21. With the COVID stimulus. No, I think, you know, the bubbles have already burst. You know, they may have further to go, but we'll see how it all shakes out further. But no, I think the bubbles have burst. What I'm saying is that the relative growth rates of digital versus analog will be very different. And, if, and, again, yeah. looking at the revenue forecast, you say they're conflicted. I'm not sure. You know, I noticed one analyst was downgrading Apple today. I think analysts... They're not, you say they're conflicted because they have relationships. I'm talking about analysts who don't have relationships. And looking at, as I say, the simple unweighted average. And when you look at the weighted average, probably it would go even stronger because it's going to be Google in particular that will weight the average and will take it up even further. But anyway, I think the bubbles are either bursting or have burst. Wow. Well, from the grim economic outlook, I want to dig deeper into the metaverse, but to cheer things up, I want to start with a joke. So this is what an economist in the music industry does for jokes. Martin, have you heard of that amazing American rapper on Spotify by the name of Pound? No. He used to be called 50 Cent. Did you get it? (laughs) Okay. So onto the metaverse, onto brighter topics. I was amazed by watching Travis Scott perform on Fortnite, Meg Thee Stallion on Amaze VR. Of what you've seen in the foothills of the metaverse today, what jumps out as you as sort of noteworthy? What are the events in the metaverse which have caught your eye? Well, it's generally the work around healthcare, around training, around working from home, around education, around sports, around entertainment, around music. I mean, our own company, just to get it in perspective, if our revenues last year about $900 billion, and if our revenues of all of us this year to be about $1.2 billion, of the Delta, of the 300 million delta, about 10%, or we'll call it 30, 30 to 40 million, would have come from or will come from metaverse projects. So there's wow. the work that we've done around the NBA and streaming their games, 
the Post Malone concerts that we've done, these sorts of things, you know, I think they cause work for what we call fashion and luxury brands, flux brands, such as Gucci or work we've done for Roblox. These are the things that stand out in my mind. So it'd be gaming, entertainment, music, fashion, luxury. But, you know, when I talk about the foothills, certainly in relation to the numbers that consultants put together, I don't think they're completed either, but they put together some, as you said in your briefing notes for this podcast, they put together some fairly heavy numbers in terms of potential market size. I don't really look at that and say right or wrong or indifferent, but directionally, I think there are so many areas where the metaverse or virtual reality will impact what we're doing, and I've named some of them, that I think it will have a very significant impact. What it means for us in terms of revenues, you know, obviously at the moment, this year, probably 10% of our incremental revenues, but you look at the overall, it's only 3 or 4%, so it's relatively small. But mm-hmm. I think it will gain traction, and people will be using it in a multiplicity way. Probably the training area is the medical areas, the healthcare areas, probably two of the ones where we will see the greatest value and the greatest usage, and the greatest places where you know we will work, make the world a better place as a result. I kind of agree with that as well. I think the value to training, to medical care, to emergency services, to getting somebody's undivided attention is what the metaverse can bring. And there's a price to that. Mm. But let's turn to the trillion dollar question, Richard. Well, look, I guess one of the questions I've got in the recessionary framework you've laid out is, will a lot of this experimental work fall by the wayside as companies are forced to go through the belt tightening exercise that surely all of them are contemplating in their budgeting cycle for next year? Or is this somehow a cost savings opportunity? Can they say, you know what, instead of that that company-wide event we're going to do in Croatia or Mallorca or wherever, we're instead going to do this all in the metaverse, and that will be seen as a way to not only experiment with new technologies, but save costs substantially. Is that, which side do you fall on for that in terms of how this, well, all well, these new wait, technologies are going to develop? When you see what happens in terms of digital transformation, when life gets tougher, we saw it in COVID, we saw it in 2020, the urge to, or the focus on digital transformation in our case, marketing transit, digital marketing transformation, the urge to do it grows. So Mm. there's pressure inside companies for top line growth and profitability. And people, the agents of change are given more oxygen during times of recession or times of economic pressure and the resistance to change uh, diminishes. I mean, the, Mm. the irony about human nature is that, or the paradox is that when times are good, people don't want to change. That's precisely when it's easier to do it. It gets more and more difficult when times get tough. But I think next year, when there will be further pressure of the sort that you're talking about, probably digital transformation will accelerate. Certainly the evidence is such. The other thing is I make a distinction between those companies that are owner-managed, where there isn't a separation of ownership and control, and those which are manager-managed. And I think the Mm. former and mm-hmm. a number of tech companies, you know, they draw criticism for being controlled by, uh, by management. But I think you can place longer-term bets. Yeah. You can take and, a longer-term view if you're owner-managed and there's no separation. 
you know, it's a brilliant setup for the next question. I wanted to go to sort of switching lanes a bit, but thinking about the markets as a whole in an area you know all too well, which is M&A or consolidation. And companies never seem to want to buy assets, however cheap they are, when times are uncertain or tough. But, you know, what we saw in the past couple of years is they were all falling over themselves to acquire assets at spectacular prices when they thought everything was going up and to the right. I mean, you've been behind acquisition-led growth stories well, for a number yeah, of decades. Yeah, is M&A yeah. something that it's a giant yeah. bubble? Or is, no, is it, a, is it kind a, of... No, it, it depends on who you are and what you're on and what you're trying to do. I and mean, we've yeah. started, when I was at Sarches, it was a pretty small company when it started. It had big mm. ambitions, so M&A played a part in addition to organic growth ambitions. Same for WPP, we started nothing, and we started nothing on S4 too. So all of these companies, in my experience, have started in small beginnings, have had very great ambitions, which probably could not be served completely by organic growth rates, whatever the organic growth rate was within their particular market. So I think it's a little bit unfair. You know, I mean, Adobe has made a deal recently at eye-watering on the per surface, eye-watering revenue multiples, despite the fact that valuations have come back quite sharply. So I think you're being a little bit unfair and a little bit cynical. I mean, I think it's true that when money is easy or where costs of capital are low and interest rates are low, the urge to merge or the urge to acquire is probably greater and the mm. animal spirits are probably greater. And it takes, mm. again, I draw a distinction between owner-managed and, and manager-managed. I think probably when times get tougher, owner-managed companies are probably more aggressive because they feel they can take more risk. They feel that if they do make a mistake, they won't necessarily get kicked out or criticized over heavily. So I think there's something in that, in what you say, but I don't think it's quite as extreme as you suggest. And I would, you know, private equity obviously has great advantages being out of the public eye. But what's mm. interesting about what's happening currently, you know, I, I noticed yesterday Goldman launched 10 billion or close to 10 billion buyout fund. So mm. in the teeth of the gale yesterday, yep. they're launching a 10 billion fund. They're not one of the biggest alternate assets managers, but I think they're in the top six or seven. And obviously they see this as a, you know, I saw a fund manager this morning who had been at um, a conference yesterday. I said, what was the mood? The mood was, you know, things are cheap. So I think um, no. that, you know, the, it's a little bit unfair to paint everybody with that brush, but I, you know, I do think that when money is easy, people do, you know, they are more active. Yeah, and it's very clear from looking at the numbers. You had this incredible surge of IPOs, and we'll come on to some of the other areas of the bubbles, whether it's SPACs or, well, or these Port, sort. Of Porsche was IPO today, and I think went to a yep. premium. So yes. this was in the yep. teeth of a, another gale. So so you know, there are exceptions that prove the rule, maybe. There are. Porsche's particularly unique one. I mean, just as we head to the break, when I've looked back, certainly in the last 20, 30 years of being an analyst, some of the bubbles have clearly been justified. And I think we can agree that mobile and e-commerce together were just enormous value creators. And you obviously got- Yeah, yeah, spats. Five, spats are memes. You know, <laughs> listening to a program today, so. I mean, spats and memes were. So, so yeah. or have been. So, you know, those were probably the signals that, you know, I remember- watching CNBC once and one SPAC backer, I think it was his seventh or ninth SPAC. And I sat there looking at it and thinking, what the hell is going on here? 
Well, it's simple. Our definition on bubble trouble of SPACs was give me an give me money for an idea I haven't had yet, so, <laughs> which people may not be interested in, <laughs> which which may or may not work. But just give me the money for it, and I'll see if I can find one. They weren't actually giving you the money. You had a call on that money, but placing it at your disposal. Yeah, but it wasn't placing the disposal. I mean, you know, you saw the one that you know, was it Gary Cohn had, which was a nine billion yeah. SPAC, and he had his deal with the lottery company and they uh, the investors said no so despite yeah. connection despite scale this slide one looked like an interesting company from many respects they said that let me just take it to the break i'd say when we do these podcasts about the metaverse the pendulum swings from optimist to cynic and i would conclude the first half of this one being a bit of an optimist i think initially martin your description of how the benefits of the shift to digital and the shift to the metaverse offset the cost of the belt tightening but also something else you touched on as well, which is just a dollar created in the metaverse is a really profitable dollar. Zara Larsson, a Swedish artist that I worked with, she made 1.4 million on Roblox. She's not the biggest artist in the world, and 1.4 million is not the biggest touring revenues in the world. Right. But she saw all of that 1.4 million. There was no trucks, no roadies, no yeah. white vans with t-shirts. That was 1.4 yeah. million top line and 1.4 million bottom line. Yeah. So I think yeah. you've got these two forces which work in the metaverse's favor. So we'll get back into more metaverse troubles in part two. But thank you so much, Martin Sorrell, for the contribution so far. Back in a moment. Welcome back to part two of Bubble Trouble, our session with Sir Martin Sorrell, the legendary ad man, talking about everything from the metaverse to a whole range of other bubbles. Will, do you want to pick up a few other issues on music streaming and some of the topics you wanted to quiz Sir Martin on? Yeah, I want to go down the rabbit hole in part two and something. And it's to get a little bit technical, but what has interested me about music is for the transformation that Spotify brought to the market, for the billions of revenues, the millions and millions of catalog sales that are going on, it all gravitates towards this simple unit called a per stream. Why is a stream only worth mm. half a cent or half a penny? Then I look at your world of advertising. You think about the transformation advertising, click per action, click per search, and all these other different metrics, all these other different mediums mm. of getting adverts in front of people's eyes and ears. Yet your world mm. seems to gravitate towards the CPM. So mm. we seem to have history not necessarily repeating itself, but rhyming again here. But in the metaverse, what do you think will be the units that matter as this market sort of builds itself out? Well, you know, you know, we sort of touched on it at the end of the first section. I think revenue and generating revenues and generating sales. So it's going to be unit volumes and margin, I think is going to be more and more important. I mean, in the early stages, and we saw that we've seen that with a lot of the projects that we've had, and I told you the scale of it, it's relatively limited for us at the minute, although it will grow. Yeah, even in the early stages, I mean, we're measuring it in those terms. And we're looking maybe in the early stages in the foothills, clients are looking for noise and PR impact. I mean, it's like rather NFTs. I mean, I think NFTs, extensive NFTs to me don't compute. Cheap NFTs like baseball cards do. So high volume, low unit price, I could see, but I can't see low volume, high unit price really working over over the long term. But I think where you can get a volume opportunity, there's some interesting opportunities there. So 
I think if you're saying what's the unit of measurement, I think it will be revenues and re revenue generated or volumes and volumes generated. Cost per thousand may, may become a metric that people focus on. And I think it's going to be on revenue generation and volume generation. You know, you saw you, the sort of work that you do, you see happening in the clothing space, you know, where you use an avatar with e-commerce to buy clothing, shoes, wear, fashion wear, whatever. You know, I think people will look to it as revenue producing opportunity. Wow. Now, if I can extend that, do you think, I'm fascinated by attention economics and you talked about why TV was in trouble because nobody knows if they're watching TV. You think about the old analogy of did they put the kettle on during the commercial break? Well, it's not no, nobody knows. It, it's that you know TV by appointment is just not doesn't yeah. work anymore. So yeah, you choose the consumer is in control, and you choose when it is you're you're going to watch things. You know, even an old fart like me, and I was looking at the new series featuring Kenneth Branagh as, as Johnson, as mm -hmm. Boris Johnson, and you know during COVID, and uh, you know how am I going to watch that? Well. I saw the ad on, I think it was on actually on CNBC, if I'm right. Mm -hmm. And I down late last night before I went to bed, I downloaded the six episodes and I'll see it when I want to see it. Just to give you another example, which I think is relevant to the metaverse, actually. If you said to me, what are our clients most worried about at the moment? They're worried about a TV frequency capping and TV's reach. I mean, that's the biggest mm -hmm. area. Yeah. Yeah, they're worried about the money they waste by repeating a commercial on the same channel to the annoyance of consumers and to uh, excessive cost. And at the same time, they know that the reach of that linear TV is diminishing because younger people are watching alternative forms. It might be connected TV, over the top, whatever it happens to be. That's the biggest, that's the, I think the biggest issue. And that is driving budgets, coming back to the start of our conversation, that's driving budgets away from linear and analog to digital. And that's going to happen with increasing frequency. It's fascinating that the last bastion of TV by appointment and somewhere where you've seen tremendous bubbles and inflation in rights is sports. Because right. you simply can't time shift that's at four o'clock on a Sunday. No, the results. What's also yeah. interesting about it is one of the reasons for that increase in rights prices is... Because the new economy is prepared to engage with that content. You know, I was on the F1 board for many years and the big debate, point of debate was, you know, should you give BBC access where you knew you had millions <laughs> of people watching or should you go to Sky who paid you more for the rights, but you had a smaller viewing audience yeah. population. Yeah. Yeah. Now you see what ha has happened under Malone, under Malone, under Liberty's expansion is really interesting now up to, you know, when I was on the board, I think we kept the number of races at 20 and it's now up to 24 races. Yeah. Every race obviously adds at least 5% to your bottom line. And certainly, you know, if you could pick out cities like Las Vegas or Miami and mm. start to build a fan base in the U S as they're starting to do, you know, it can become extremely lucrative. If I can wheel back quickly to those two issues facing linear TV, frequency yeah. and reach, I think there's a third, which yeah. is distraction. That is, find me somebody under the age of 20, 25, who watches or listens to any content without a distraction. Mm -hmm. And I've been developing this a well, lot, which is... Right. Yeah, that, well, that comes but, back to your, your, text, your 
phobia with intent with attention, I guess. So, so I always think in economics of a standard class carriage and a first class carriage. Do you think it's possible you'll have a standard class at market which hits people where there's a known distraction at present? And then there's a first class market called the metaverse where you can't be distracted because it's one year undivided attention. Maybe. I mean, where we've got different classes is Netflix had to make that decision, isn't it? Which is, <laughs> they had to make the, Spot- the Spotify decision. They said, we're going to be pure. We're not going to have advertising. And then they buckled because they saw, you know, what happened was YouTube went to 30 billion. I mean, but, YouTube's yeah, ad revenues hit 30 billion, which was what Netflix subscription revenues were. And I think Netflix finally realized that they could have both kingdoms if they put their mind to it. And that's what they're trying to do now. But they are coming yeah. from different angles. YouTube subscription numbers are also flying off the scale as well because people are just fed up yeah. skipping trials. And so they've actually, yeah. they've come at it from a different lens. But I would, if I had to put money on a horse, I'd put it on the horse called YouTube. Well, uh, uh, we can debate that, but, you know, I would put money on both horses, both the subscription model and the ad model. Now, I want to, I'd love to switch again to something that came up in a conversation yesterday in New York with where I was talking to a number of premium publishers. And, you know, one of the things that we got used to in the old world was being able to find that premium content because we knew the brands it was associated with. And, you know, these premium publishers now are worried that in a world of TikTok, in a world of algorithmic curation of what content you see, there is nothing that's premium. It's just whatever the algorithm chooses to put in front of users. <laughs> How do you preserve that premium for the content that is so carefully nurtured and curated and developed in a world where the distribution might be entirely in the hands of algorithms? Well, it, it's difficult. I mean, I've always I've always felt the paywalls. I mean, in the ori- originally, the paywalls were a way to go because if you had content that consumers really valued, consumers would pay for it. They'd be willing to pay a significant premium to do it. But the answer to your question is, if it's all going to be determined by algorithms, it's going to be extremely difficult to maintain that premium. Yeah, and it certainly would seem to have a lot of implications for the brands that you work with. How do they preserve that brand preference in a world where an algorithm can shift attention towards other brands? Well, increasingly, that's being done you know, ever since Google first announced that they were going to deprecate third-party cookies, ever mm. since Apple made their changes around IDFA, the way the world is going, and I don't think the clients understand that. I mean, we've seen that heavy, heavy loading up on data and analytics and digital media as a result. I mean, if you're trying to develop a relationship with the consumer in a world where privacy is of great importance, brand security is of great importance, worry about interference, political interference or whatever, first-party data and the signals from the platforms become the two sources that you have to leverage. Mm. So mm. You, what you're seeing now, you know, we've talked about the dominance of the big six, as I call them, which would be Alphabet, Meta, Amazon, Tencent, Alibaba, and iDance or TikTok, which are the the six Hmm. big players. If you look at what's happening with them, everything is really feeding back to them because our clients have had to develop their first-party data sources. They had to make sure they all talk to one another because they've grown organically or by acquisition. They've had different CTOs or CIOs who've employed different systems, or they bought companies going back to your M&A binge 
comment. They bought companies and they haven't managed to integrate them sufficiently. Now they have to do that. Create one in an ideal world, one database, consented. So you, you drop the hurdle of privacy and you've got over that, that consumer concern and you use mm. that data plus the signals from the platforms to build that relationship. Now mm. you see the retailers, you know, who are all terrified about Amazon. Yeah. You see Walmart and everybody else. Doing Kroger, retail media. Retail media, building platforms. You know, Walmart are doing it with Microsoft. And yeah. Walgreens Boots are doing it with Microsoft. They're building their technological capabilities to build that direct relationship. So Google was really astute in, in doing what it did on third-party cookies. I think a lot of people at the beginning thought, it was a strange move. It was really very, a very smart move. Yeah. I mean, w the way we've likened it in the case of both Google and Apple is that they have been slowly tightening their grip on Signal. My analogy that I've used with investors the last days in New York is that it's when an anaconda it, it catches a deer in the Amazon, it bites it, and then it spends a day squeezing the breath out of it and another day swallowing it. And that's where the slowly creeping Why changes. Why do you have to have these analogies <laughs> which conjure up in people's minds all sorts of dark thoughts. Because, why can't, because you just, why can't you just, Richard, say it was a smart move? It was a <laughs> super smart move. But why because is it lethal, deadly? I'll tell you, Sir Martin, because when we look at a whole coterie of stocks that we follow that are becoming the roadkill from these policy changes of Google and Apple, that they're being left by the wayside. They're being strangled by the increased control that some of these firms are able to exert over and, Signal. And you inherently suggesting they're evil by doing so. Not at all. Not. No, they're absolutely no, no, no. brilliant business strategies. And the now, two if what you're advising your clients is to buy Google, to buy absolutely. Meta, to buy yep. Amazon, I'm 150% in agreement. There you go. And the two names that I would add to that list, because both of them have substantial aims in this digital advertising space, are both Apple and Microsoft, who I have tremendous assets to so, bring to bear and are agree. putting them, cleverly arranging them in place right now. Stand by for Apple in the metaverse, stand for Microsoft in the metaverse, and also Absolutely. Yeah. Microsoft Absolutely. plus Activision becomes a... Of course, I totally agree with that. And Sir Martin, I don't know if this little bit of trivia will help or hinder your ability to figure out what to do with TikTok, but I did a piece of work with them in February of this year about that guy who was hanging off the back of a truck, drinking a bottle of soda and singing Dreams, a Fleetwood Mac song from 1981. Now, what was interesting, there was 97.4 million views of this guy hanging off the back of a truck, drinking a bottle of soda and singing a Fleetwood Mac song. That's interesting. It's not a jaw-dropping figure by YouTube standards, but it's a big number. What stunned me was there was 876,000 people who had gone onto TikTok to impersonate this guy hanging off the back of a truck, <laughs> drinking a bottle of soda, and singing a Fleetwood Mac song from 1981. That was incredible. It's, <laughs> there's a signal-to-noise ratio there for the advent to work out. Yeah. Why don't we move to our famous section of Bubble Trouble where we ask our guests to help us do a little smoking and ask for the smoke signals, the signs of hysteria or bubbles or problems lurking that uh, where you overhear terminology or metaphors that make you think twice, where you get a strange sense of deja vu as we might be getting now, looking back at the dot-com boom and bust yeah. with some of the companies that came to the market in the last three or four years yeah. and are now yeah. falling. What are a couple smoke signals you've got to share with listeners uh, of things uh, that uh, make you really give you pause? I'd be very generic about it. I, it's when you can't understand, you know, Buffett always said, you remember when Buffett was chairman of Salomon Brothers, 
Mm. And he went through all that trouble. You know, I think he went before Congress and, you know, he had to apologize and everything. And he handled it brilliantly, handled it absolutely brilliantly. He said that when he was asking traders, you know, what their hedging strategies were or straddle strategies or whatever it was, he couldn't understand what they were talking about. That he said, if people can't explain to you in words of one syllable, in a couple of sentences, what, what they're doing, walk away from it. <laughs> and I guess that's what drives Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett around crypto is that they can't, yeah. they can, so, you know, I mean, that's a good example. I mean, the language, you know, when you see, I won't name names, but there were a couple, there were a couple recently who were on CNBC who were doing a big crypto deal. And I couldn't understand a frigging word of what right. they were talking about. I don't know whether they did. I only hope for their sakes that they did, but I couldn't understand it. So I think the answer to your question is, I would, is when the language becomes so convoluted or so difficult to follow, I think that's when the warning signs mm. go up. So I, I take it you didn't take a video of that CNBC appearance and create an NFT out of it. No, I did not. <laughs> I did not. I did not. I did not. It'll be very interesting to see how that shakes out. But the only, maybe these people do understand what they're talking about. But I think when you can't explain simply what it is you're trying to do, I think it's a problem. That's when the BS and indicator starts to flash. So, and do you have another one heading into, into what is clearly going to be a very difficult period from the economy, from we've all watched the pound collapse, as well as the euro well, relative I, I, to the I, dollar? Our prime minister is now using the phrase, I'm decisive. I make hard decisions, decisive, hard decisions. That is the cover for unplanned, uninformed decision-making. That you cover off ill-thought-through thinking by saying, I'm making hard decisions and I'm decisive. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes it, it may well be better to delay a decision. I would say that's, you know, Less, less so than you know, it's better. I think to make quick decisions, but there are circumstances where making decisions, you know, postponing them. I mean, for example, last Friday's decision would, I think, by the chancellor, would have been better delayed. Not on the energy front, not not helping people with their energy bills, but the longer term thing, you know, cutting taxes, reducing regulation, with which I philosophically agree would have been better postponed until they'd worked through the numbers and had an OBR, you know, the Office of Budget Responsibility, mm. which is our independent analyst mm. like you, who's meant to opine on the, the fiscal implications of the government strategy. So, you know, I think what, you know, making a decision for the sake of making a decision and saying I'm being hard and decisive is not a justification. These things impact black people's lives so deeply that mm. they've really got to be thought through. And you know, and it, not and saying, you know, philosophically, you're committed to reducing taxes, fine. Reducing regulation is fine. But the implications are so huge, particularly when you know, we've been spending so much money post-COVID with the energy crisis, with the Ukraine war, mm. with everything else that's had to be dealt with. I mean, it, it needs careful, modulated thinking. Yeah, Indeed, just, and it almost seems like the sort of TikTok, the meme stockization of political decision making. You know, we're going into our own planning season, our yeah. three-year planning season at S4. We're, we'll then develop our budgets for that. But 
you know, we've got to do it in a planned and ordered way. So I think that's as we go into a difficult economic period, planning is going to be really, and I think this is an important point. I think given what the world faces, which is different to what we faced for the last 50 years, as we try and expand our company or anybody else's, we're going to have to be highly selective about where we do it geographically Hmm. because the geographical growth rates are going to vary very significantly from one region or country to another because we will see different systems. And then the second thing is you have to choose where you fight your battles, you know, where we started the conversation, digital rather than manual. Within digital, there are going to be some areas, maybe down the funnel in the next couple of years, which are going to be more potent than the upper funnel stuff. So where we talked about the data and analytics and the need for first-party data and, and the use of the signals, all these things mean that you know, in the, old, in the last 50 years, it didn't matter where you went, wherever you planted your flag, as, as long as the demographics were reasonably good, you won because of, you know, it's Ted Levitt's globalization. I'm not saying that globalization has gone completely, but it's going to be much more nuanced, you know, with Taiwan, with Ukraine, with Iran, you know, quite apart from climate change and inflation and interest rates and everything else that we have to deal with, it's going to have to be much more selective and it's not going to be as global, I think, as it was before. I mean, you look at Apple building, making phones in India. You look at Mm. Foxconn changing its supply chain to Vietnam. I mean, all these things are straws in that wind. As we close this one off, well, firstly, Sir Martin, thank you so much for your precious time. But what I am definitely feeling from this podcast is the adaptability of digital versus the inadaptability of linear broadcast. And the agility. Might... Well, 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 no, that's a really yeah. important point because clients have had, in a 24-7 world, they have to take back control. I mean, it may yeah. sound strange for an advertising agent to say that, but, you know, we have three models, the in-house model, the embedded model where we put people into a client and the outsource model. The irony about a recession is it probably forces more people to the outsource model, but in-housing and embedded models are far more important in a 24-7 always-on environment. They have to have the control. Yeah. You know, so like a political campaign, right? In the old days, you'd use TV and press and whatever. You don't do that anymore. You'd use highly targeted, analytical, you pump out messages, you see what the response is, you see the change in attitude. And I think that's what we're doing. Yeah, We're uh, trying uh, to do. an old advertising industry, which is throw everything at a wall and see what sticks, that was yeah. not recession-proof, and that would not get us to right. off the foothills of the That's metaverse. Right. In this new world, That's right. we know what we're throwing, and we know it's going to stick, and I think that is recession-proof, and will get us towards the metaverse. Yeah. 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 So, Martin, you're the biggest guest to date. This has been the best podcast to date, and I'm not just saying that. This has been fantastic. We are very good. Oh, you're your fully, you're fully, you should be in advertising, Will. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this has been brilliant and learned so much about economics as well as advertising too. So my Hello. thanks to Richard Kramer, Hopefully. my host, and Sir Martin for being <laughs> such a wonderful guest. Thank you so much. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, thanks. Will. Thanks. Thank you. If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Newsom, Jesse Baker, and Julia Natt at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Will Page and I will see you next time.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.